I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action in Disney and Expedia, both names on the move on earnings, both names big reads on the reopening trade. We'll tell you what they are saying about the future straight ahead. Plus, the next big target, did the Reddit rebellion just set its sights on this $333 billion company? The telling trades we spotted today in the options market. And later, make way for the Queen Bee, Bumble, all the buzz in its public debut. But will investors get stung by this stock? We'll bring you the trade. We start off with Disney delivering in its latest quarter. The company smashing streaming expectations. The stock higher in the after-hour session. Let's get straight to Julia Borston, who is fresh off that Disney call. Julia. Melissa, that's right. That earnings call underway right now. The stock up nearly 3% after the company exceeded expert expectations on the top line and reported a profit rather than the loss analysts anticipated. Now, the two key areas in focus, parks and streaming, both outperformed expectations. Disney's streaming business outpaced projections, growing to 95 million Disney Plus subscribers and 146 million total direct-to-consumer customers. Now, that includes Hulu and ESPN+. That division grew revenue 73% from the year earlier quarter. We've been especially pleased with the success of our direct-to-consumer business. And our recent strategic reorganization has enabled us to accelerate the company's pivot towards a DTC-first business model and further grow our streaming services. Disney Plus has exceeded even our highest expectations. Meanwhile, the Parks Division's revenue dropped less than anticipated, down by 53%. The company announcing that COVID has had a $2.6 billion impact on the Parks Division's operating income as a result of closures and reduced capacities. Where we have been able to reopen our theme parks with limited capacity, guests have consistently demonstrated a willingness and a desire to visit, which we believe is a testament to the fact that they feel confident in the health and safety protocols we've put in place. Average daily attendance at Walt Disney World grew significantly from Q4 into Q1. Chapek saying they're continuing to invest to build out different features of their parks. And they said they're very pleased with the reservations and consumer interest in visiting parks. Melissa, of course, that's going to be in focus as they start to get to be able to increase their capacity in Florida and are allowed to open up here in California. All right. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, the latest on Disney, which is up 3% after hours. Guy Adami, how do you like this stock? How do you like what they said on this call? Well, kudos again. I mentioned it last night. Karen sort of took a pass on the kudos. I'll give it to her anyway. And Tim, who've been all over this. And so, listen, I'm not a huge fan of treadmills. And this is going somewhere, Mel, by the way. So just indulge me for a second. But you, know, you get on a treadmill, you go eight miles an hour. Maybe you walk. Maybe you put the incline up, down. You're on it for 45 minutes. But when you get off, you're exactly where you started. And I bring that up because, listen, it's great that they keep adding people to the Disney Plus. I get it. But as Rich Greenfield, amongst many others, pointed out, ARPU is down 28% year over year. I'll let Tim tell you what that means because that's the game we play here. But effectively, in a lot of ways, they're running in place. Now, the naysayers will say that's a bad thing that's going to lead to declines in stock. And the optimists will say they're going to be able to monetize all those people. They'll all buy a Drew Barrymore short with uh, the DeLorean on it and those types of things. And maybe they'll go Mr. Toad's Wild Ride when the parks reopen. I'm not nearly as optimistic. So it's had a great ride. Valuations now are at levels where I don't think it necessarily should be. 
Okay, I'm going to pick up on that point because I also read that tweet. So uh, this past quarter, uh, the ARPU average revenue per user was $4.03 for Disney Plus, and a year ago it was $5.56. Tim, should we not care about this at this early stage of growth for Disney, for the streaming service? I don't think so. I mean, I, no, I don't think so. And I, I think, you know, guy may be like George Jetson on the treadmill. I, I, I avoid treadmills. I, I'd rather be out there. And Disney's running uh, through the streets right now with with 95 million. And, you know, essentially when you add in Hulu and, and ESPN Plus, we heard those numbers. Look, this, this, the strategic reorganization is part of the excitement here. Again, this DTC division is up 73 uh, percent during a period when Netflix has been in a sweet spot of engagement and couldn't be in a better position. Disney's outperformed them. The stocks outperformed Disney, outperformed Netflix by almost 40 percent since since August. But even over the last couple of years, it's outperformed Netflix, which you know we would all certainly agree is also making a move, especially in terms of profitability. But again, you know, did we care about that with Netflix? Should we care about that with Disney? When also they're showing that they can at least be profitable in their core business through very difficult times on the way out of COVID. So, look, I, I understand the profitability issues. And at some point, Disney's got to create their own content. We know that's very expensive. But if you're asking me, you know, from, a, from an investor's perspective, am I happy with, with the, the, the metrics that are driving the stock to move higher? And, and 39 times five bucks a share of 2022 is, is not expensive when you consider what is being paid for Netflix. So at what point, Karen, and I'll go to you on this one, at what point should we care about the quality of these subscriber numbers? I mean, the argument would be that Disney is effectively giving away its service in India, in parts of Asia, and, and the numbers go up and the ARPU goes down. Mm -hmm. I think, well, we see similar things with Netflix in terms of, you know, it being less expensive outside of the United States. But to me, it's sort of the, the I guess the... The Disney story is one of, okay, while, while the pandemic is here, that's been great for Disney Plus, right? And it's an extraordinary uh, environment to start your, your streaming service. So that's really great. However, once we do reopen, and I'm very optimistic on reopening, and I'm very optimistic on how parks will do and how, um, you know, their cruises, hotels, all of that part of the business that is so important to Disney. And I wonder, I can't help but wonder, what kind of drag will that have on the momentum of Disney Plus and the sort of euphoria around the valuation around Disney Plus? And we don't really hear much about some of the rest of the businesses, the media businesses, that is, that, you know, we, we saw, I think it wasn't as bad as I thought on, on cord cutting with fees going up a little bit, but there's that part of the business as well. Plus, they do have a lot of debt, remember, from the Fox um, transaction. So, all that having said, it's a great company. It should trade at a premium. It does, but sort of too much for me, and, and I've missed the run here. I mean, we and spent, I wouldn't be a buyer tonight at 196. Yeah. We, we spent the past, I don't know, what, six minutes, five minutes, talking ex exclusively almost on the streaming service when the parks are really a bright spot in this earnings release in the context of better than expected. And, Dan, if we are to believe that there is going to be a sharp reopen, I mean, the Biden administration just announcing moments ago it has secured $200 million more vaccine doses for a distribution in the United States, then that could be a huge boost to, to the stock. 
Yeah, well, it could be a huge boost to the company, right? Yeah. So, like, look at what the stock's doing. It's going to tick $200 probably tomorrow morning on the opening, right? It's up 50% right now from when they reported their last quarter's results in November. It's up 20% in just the last few weeks. So it's one thing to talk about the fundamentals of the company and what's offsetting what. Um, for me, what I think is really interesting is what's baked into the stock right now. If you look at the market and you look at other areas of the market that are anticipating a better-than-expected or sooner than expected reopening, then it makes sense. But but at some point, this thing's trading about 41 times next year's earnings, 2022. They will not get back to their peak earnings in 2018, probably until 2023, maybe 2024. I know no one cares about valuation right now. That's not the game in the stock market or for any, for any market for that matter. But at some point, they will care. And so I guess Tim's comparative valuation to Netflix doesn't, you know, listen, I get it, um, except that Netflix is a very simple business. It's really about growing their content and growing overseas. Disney's got all of these different competing factors, and that media business is a challenge. And who knows what the parks division does when it comes back with costs and that sort of thing. So to me, I'm kind of in Karen's camp and Guy's camp. You know, I don't think you have to buy the stock here as it's going to trade $200 up 50% in the last three and a half months. But it's a name that you definitely want to own on a pullback, because if we're going to have a multi-year recovery from this pandemic, mm -hmm. these these guys are going to benefit. Didn't we reset the the ratings game on, on Disney, though, the P.E. game on Disney? Once it entered this new business, Tim, should we still look back at 2018 as being peak earnings? Should we still say, you know, the P.E. ratio historically was X, Y and Z for Disney? And so therefore, you know, it should trade here or there. It's a I mean, different company. Right. I mean, yeah, is it it's a different is, company, isn't it? It's a different company. It's a different world. I mean, look, their linear TV business is in a, in a, a bad decline, and we all know where that's going. And, and that was one of the plums of the empire. And again, studio in the traditional sense has always been there and part of that content flywheel. But 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 look at the the re-rating of the stock from November of 2019. This is all about the new business. And then when they gave you a little bit more clarity on the reorganization of the company into essentially these two these two primary divisions, but 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 getting distribution uh, and some of the DTC stuff out there uh, and separating it. And, and look, it, it to me, it, it's I'm someone that ultimately does default to valuation. I don't just say this, you know, pie in the sky. Who cares? But but I, I look look at how we are rewarding uh, companies that that have either an online and e-commerce or a streaming multiple. And, and we know who they are and they've set the bellwether. And we've seen a lot of other companies uh, and that. I, I won't get into what Walmart's doing. I won't get into what I think even Walgreens Boots is doing. I, I just I, I think there's a chance for a lot of these legacy companies to be re-rating. Disney's going right after Netflix, and, and they may not be able to compete in some areas right now, but there's no question that they deserve part of this multiple. And, and look, tomorrow's trade is different than the last six months. The last six months, it's been really clear. You wanted to own Disney. There's no question about that trade. In terms of tomorrow, um, I think, you know, I, I, look, I think Disney's going to continue to prove that they're growing this business and that they're willing to sacrifice ARPU um, and ultimately will have pricing power. Disney has pricing power. They've got a brand. All right. For more on Disney, let's bring in Fast Money friend and media mogul Tom Rogers, former NBC cable president and TiVo CEO. He's executive chairman of Engine Media and a CNBC contributor. Tom, always great to speak with you. Um, I know you've brought Thanks this up me. before in terms of this this notion of ARPU. Um, is that a concern for you still? Or is this growth, these numbers for Disney Plus, are they just too good to sort of ignore? Well, Tim's been absolutely right. Disney has been a terrific trade. 
but I would offer this caution, and I'd offer it not just about Disney, but any of the legacy media stock. Um, not all subscribers are equal. Uh, we don't know what these subscriber numbers that they've announced really are. I haven't heard on the call whether they've talked about how many of them are hot star subs out of India that are are pools that much less than a dollar. I don't know how many of these subs came out of the U.S., how much churn they've, they've actually seen. But revenue per sub and profitability of a sub really matter. If you look at the cable satellite model, uh, ESPN and the Weather Channel both had, you know, over 90 million subs. But the value of those subs on the two services were totally different. The sheer number of subs, which is the headline number, which keeps moving the Disney stock, does not really equate to what the ultimate value of the new Disney business is going to be. And you really have to look further beyond that and say, what is this business replacing? It is directly replacing a legacy media business that was getting about $19 per subscriber throughout the entire cable satellite footprint. Versus streaming subs that are getting six ninety nine, or if you take the bundle twelve ninety nine, you're getting paid in the cable satellite world across every home, whether that home ever watches you or not. In the streaming world, you only get paid for those who take you. So Disney has, in addition to that, all the marketing and technology expense of those streaming subs, expense that the cable and satellite companies absorb in the in the legacy world so you can really look at this and say well they've got to bring forward a lot more streaming subs to be able to just make up for what they're going to lose on the legacy side so this isn't all additive the market is now looking at legacy media stocks putting up streaming sub numbers and saying it's all additive you got to take into account how much down draft they have Hey, Tom, it's Tim. So, look, this is always a great conversation with you because you've been a media visionary. And, and to the extent that Netflix has been visionary in terms of their business and arguably Disney is trying to catch up, I would argue that. But in, in the same way that we've seen this throughout time, uh, sometimes the innovators are then copied. Uh, and, and in some sense, it's done better by the next guy. Now, to the extent that Disney's got a brand what, what is Netflix's next move here to outflank Disney? Do they have to, or is the head start too big? Uh, no, I don't think they have to outflank uh, uh, Disney. Uh, they're going straight at Disney in terms of producing kids' programming, including kids' movies that are going to go right at that franchise. Um, look, everything I just said about Disney uh, could be offset in part by it creating a global franchise that is a global streaming service, taking a page out of the Netflix book of you can grow on a global basis. Look, the, the, the bull case for Netflix used to be 300 million subs. Now the bull case for Netflix is 400, 500 million subs and beyond. And if Disney follows that playbook of looking beyond the U.S. market and creating that global brand, uh, at the kind of ARPUs that Netflix has, they are going to replace and build beyond the, the existing media business value. But you can't do that off the back of hot star subs that are worth less than a dollar. And so they really have to think about how they're going to build this 
and whether Disney programming, as strong as the brand is, is enough, or they have to follow the Netflix playbook of non-English language, localized content that is really intended to drive penetration and ARPU in those local markets. That's the game that Netflix is playing that nobody else has. Netflix can continue to play the game it has. It's Disney that has to think about how it, it, it catches up to really the, the play Netflix has been laying out. Tom, great to speak with you as always. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Tom Rogers, CNBC contributor and Fast Money friend. Guy, I will go to you. The stock is up almost 2% after hours, so holding on to gains here. Um, what would you be looking for? Uh, further in terms of color from conference call or from analysts in the morning? No, how quickly things are going to get, you know, what's their anticipation, things coming back to normal on the park front, you know, what's their media strategy in terms of films and those types of things. I think Tom makes a lot of great points. I mean, listen, Tim's been spot on and, you know, I've understood the run as well. The question you have to ask is how much of all the optimism that we're talking about now baked into the stock? And I would say it's significant. So, if you've enjoyed the run, there's nothing wrong with continuing to hold on to this name. As a trader, I'd be inclined to take some money off the table here. All right. Coming up, we spotted some wild moves in the options market today on this name. Could it be the next big Reddit target? we got the details straight ahead. Plus, shares of biotech company Amica is falling hard in the after hours. The company just releasing phase three trial results for its rare muscle disease drug. The Amica CEO will join us straight ahead. But first, we've got an earnings alert for you on Expedia. Shares on the go after reporting results. We'll break down the action when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on Expedia. The shares are uh, lower in the after-hours session after reporting results. Let's get to Seema Modi with the numbers. Seema. Melissa, the travel restrictions that were reintroduced in late November, early December did have a negative effect on travel. Expedia seeing a 67% drop in fourth quarter gross bookings. And now given that Expedia doesn't break out financials for Verbo, its home rental platform that directly competes with Airbnb, much of the earnings call has been around Verbo. Here's what CEO Peter Kern said. Verbo, not a big surprise. That continues to be a terrific use case with the whole home market being very attractive. Family travel being very attractive in that form. Uh, and North America generally has been uh, a relative bright spot. Kern also said, we believe we have seen very good share and share growth relative to our competition. Now, while Airbnb is a dominant player in the vacation rental market, Expedia's Verbo has been growing its share. Kern says that the goal is to drive more direct traffic and spend more on brand marketing. But lack of details on how much. Overall, Expedia executives say they feel good about capitalizing on the moment travel rebounds with the vaccine. But right now, they're projecting a choppy, not linear recovery. You can see the stock down about 2% in extended trade. Some analysts, including Gordon Haskett, say what is working in Verbo's favor is its geographical footprint with a higher percentage of properties in beach vacation markets, whereas Airbnb is more widely dispersed. A lot of properties in urban markets that, of course, are in less demand right now. And that certainly could work in Verbo's favor. This is the first earnings report from a travel company, Melissa. Next week, we hear from the hotel operators, Marriott, Hilton, Hyde. And then two weeks from now will be Airbnb's report, their first earnings report as a public company. All right. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with Expedia. Karen, your thoughts? So I'm looking at at, uh, Expedia Enterprise Value, which is stock plus debt, which they had to raise during the pandemic. It's as high as it has ever been. 
beyond the peak in their business. So that's sort of troubling. The, um, the lodging part is normally the best part of their business, but VRBO, which is vac uh, vacation rental by owner, the Airbnb comp, has really been sort of the bright spot there. You can see the valuation of Airbnb, well over $200 a share now. I don't know how much to value VRBO, but my God, to have the whole thing be trading higher than it, than it was at the prior peak before this, I don't know. I'm optimistic on the reopen trade, but I don't feel like I need to jump into Expedia right here. All right. We got a market flash here on Bausch Health. Josh Lipton's got the details. Josh. So, Melissa, we have headlines dropping on Mr. Carl Icahn. He's reporting a 7.8% stake in Bausch Health Companies as of February 1st. Says he acquired those positions in the belief that the shares were undervalued. He intends to engage in discussions uh, with management and the board on ways to enhance shareholder value. So those discussions may also include possible board representation. And he expects to have discussions with other shareholders uh, to understand their perspectives. But again, the headline here, Carl Icahn reporting 7.8% stake in Bausch Health Companies. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Carl's at it again, guy. Tireless. Yeah. Listen, good for, good for Carl back. I mean, we haven't heard from from a while. He's pulling, you know, he's pulling no punches here, clearly. But just go back uh, for those playing our home game and for you technicians out there. The level we're trading at now in BHC is the same level we were trading at, I believe, in December of 2019. So just take a look at uh, where this stock f fell from and where we are now. So I wouldn't be pouring into it now. My sense is you will see a bit of a pullback in terms of this potential double top. But, you know, when Carl Icahn gets into things, it's obviously news and we're breaking in with it now. All right. Coming up, did we just spot the next big target? Why this $333 billion company could be caught in the crosshairs of the retail revolt and later investors swiping right on shares of Bumble as a dating app makes its stock market debut. But is this a match made in heaven? We've got that trade and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Is this $333 billion company the next target in the Reddit rebellion? It's a name you know. Let's get to Mike Coe. Mike, what you see? Yeah, so we're taking a look at PayPal. I mean, the Reddit rebellion stocks, if you take a look at something like GameStop, at the end of last year, that was a $250 million company, as you pointed out. This one's worth more than $300 billion. So, And also, it's a very different story fundamentally. We're taking a look at a company that's growing earnings at probably... Uh, 20 plus percent per year. It's doubled its revenues over the course of the last five years. But one of the areas where we do see some commonalities with those Reddit stocks is in the options market. This one traded more than three times its average daily call volume, 223,000 call contracts traded overall. And similar to those Reddit stocks, all of that is very short dated. The most active options were the weekly 300 strike calls that expire tomorrow. About 32,000 of those traded for an average of about $2.60 a contract. And we can tell that there's a lot of retail activity. Why? Because the average trade size was five contracts. That means that the buyer is risking about $1,300 to control 500 shares, less than 1% of the stock price. Of course, the stock needs to rise by more than 6% by the close of business tomorrow for these to be in the money. That might seem like a pretty speculative bet. But of course, this stock did trade over 300 intraday today. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. We'll see you tomorrow in Options Action. That, of course, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. As Mike had mentioned, there is a fundamental story. PayPal actually holding its investor meeting today. It uh, announced some targets, such as doubling its active user base by 2025. The CEO also saying customers are, quote, flocking to Bitcoin. Um, by the way, Kramer's got an interview with Dan Shulman coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. So this is a case where we could see 
the fingerprints of the Reddit traders in the options market, Dan. But we've also got the fundamental story behind PayPal. Where do you stand on the stock? Yeah, Mike laid it out really nicely. I mean, the fundamental story is great. It's obviously been very well rewarded. I would just make some comments about that um, intraday volatility in the stock and the short-dated nature of these calls. And we've been talking about it over the last few weeks that it's going to get a lot harder for these Wall Street bets people to push around bigger and bigger stocks. And so you talk to institutional trading desks, they'll tell you that the one lots, the two lots, the five lots, they're just noise. They don't really matter in $300 billion market cap names. When you look at all the buying in this week expiration and next week, and you have an intraday reversal like we had of about five and a half percent from the highs, that is disastrous if you own short dated options. So to me, I just think this is another example of, you know, trying to play some of these trains, trends on a short dated basis because it's a mob mentality is not a great way to make money, even in great stories like this. Yeah. Tim, do you like PayPal? Look, I, I, I liked it, and then I didn't like the valuation. So, you know, I've, I've not enjoyed the last $75 or so in the stock. And, and look, the, the, the issue is the valuation. But for a company that's growing incremental margins, 34%, has a 20% free cash flow yield, has a target of a billion users you talked about, and an, an app refresh and, and some, some Bitcoin going for it. I think it's going higher, and I think it's going higher on fundamentals. It, it comes down to, like, so many stocks here. What are you willing to pay for it? And, and I don't own the stock here. Yeah. Guy? What's that thing we do when we have the mitts and, and, and our smart boards? The, the, what do they call that, Mel? The power the pitch. pitch. Power. Yes. Correct? Go yeah, right, the power pitch. And if, I, if memory serves, and it does, you know, Dan, this is one of his power pitch names. And I don't think we've really wavered on this name. So valuations... Listen, evaluations don't matter in some of these other things. They certainly shouldn't matter here where you actually have some growth. So I understand what Dan is saying about the reversal today. It was stark, um, but I still think this thing grinds higher. Yeah, interesting considering Bitcoin hitting a new high. Um, PayPal, obviously a, a sort of ancillary Bitcoin play along with a micro strategy, a square, which was, was higher today, Karen. So some interesting moves, mm -hmm. um, especially if you think about retail investors. They like what? They like... The Game Stops of the world, they like pot yeah. stocks, they like Bitcoin. <laughs> right. They like Bitcoin and they like stock trading, which PayPal, I think, also at their investor day talked about having a stock trading uh, product as well. So you throw all those things to, together, right? And Venmo and, I mean, what could go wrong? Nothing. I mean, it, they've done an extraordinary job. It's expensive. It deserves to be expensive. I, you know, passed the point a long time ago where I thought it would be interesting value, but they... they They've really done a great job. I do think, though, if Bitcoin does come back to earth a little bit, that the PayPal's of the world that have had this last bit of, of juice, I think is partially Bitcoin, um, we'll, we'll see that come back in a little bit. All right. We are following uh, news developments this hour on some of those wild stock swings and names like a GameStop and an AMC. I want to get to Kate Rooney with all the details. Kate. Hi, Melissa. The Department of Justice has reportedly opened an investigation into whether market manipulation had anything to do with those massive run-ups in stocks like GameStop and AMC. Federal prosecutors have subpoenaed Robinhood regarding this topic. That's according to The Wall Street Journal. The journal reports that both the Justice Department's fraud section and the San Francisco U.S. Attorney's Office are seeking answers from brokers and from social media companies. The DOJ and Robinhood did decline CNBC's request for comment. 
And Melissa, this comes as we report today a rise in angry customers showing up here at the company's headquarters, saying that they're unable to get anyone on the phone regarding some of these account issues. Police records obtained by CNBC show a total of 10 incidents at the startup's headquarters. That's from January 28th through February 9th. Before late January, the department had seen zero reports this year. This week, we witnessed one man kicking and banging on the uh, front door of Robinhood, claiming that he was unable to access his account. We spoke to another Robinhood customer who says he drove 2,400 miles from Indiana after losing $50,000 trading Nokia. He says he was locked out of his account. Robinhood did decline to comment, but after we reached out, they did get back to the one gentleman we spoke to and say they resolved his issue. And Melissa, these are a few of Robinhood's 13 million customers, but their experiences really do echo what we've been hearing from other customers we've been talking to in the past couple of weeks and some complaints to the FTC. Back to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney has been following a lot of the twists and turns of this story. We should note that uh, Robinhood executives, Melvin Capital executives, Citadel executives expected to testify on Capitol Hill February 18th. An IPO is in the offing for Robinhood. Um, Dan, how do you think this all impacts uh, the IPO, that roadshow, and, and that whole process when it's, um, it's democratizing trading but at the ire of uh, certain participants? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I think we're not going to be saying that they democratize trading. If anything, they democratize the use of a customer and how to profit off of them. And I think it's going to be um, really not great for their IPO. This could be the WeWork of 2021. I don't know how you get away or get by this sort of PR um, issue. And if you talk to other of the major broker dealers and you hear how many people they are signing up that are coming from Robinhood. I know that there were some stats out there about Robinhood downloads that were still really good from the app stores while this was all happening with the GameStop thing. I think when the dust settles, you're going to see that the large incumbents are the big winners in this one. I am no expert on clearing houses and market structure, but what always seemed to be a puzzle to me was how did it get to a point where Robinhood got phone calls literally overnight saying that it needed billions more in capital. Um, and, and I think that as it signs up a lot of these new users, that's going to be a question going forward, Karen. What, what sorts of infrastructures, compliance measures do they have in place to deal with this heavy inflow potentially of retail trades? Yeah, it's not enough. And also it makes you wonder if whatever the whatever the arrangement they had before, if you were their clearinghouse, are the, you know, do you need them to put up much more money in the future I don't know. Does that affect their business model? I don't know if that's a more broad thing than just Robin Hood. I think that, I mean, that that was probably an all night thing for several nights in a row. And it's sort of amazing. You know, my kids asked me a lot about it and, the, and they were so furious at Robin Hood. Not that they have Robin Hood accounts, but um, that to me, though, that it had to, of course, been an existential crisis. Or why would Robin Hood do that? They don't want to shut their customers out. So I don't know if if they do file, are we going to see are they going to have to tell us everything that happened during this period? Are we going to really get the story? I'd want to know that in an S1. I would find that interesting in the risks. And I don't know. I, I'd love to hear more about this story because there's there's a lot there. Yeah, we might hear it when they're on Capitol Hill. All right, coming up, put a pin in it. We'll tell you about some big deal chatter in the social media space, how you can trade around it. But first, in honor of Black History Month, we are celebrating some of our own contributors. Here is Fast Money trader Bono and Eisen with some advice for the next generation. The next generation of leaders 
business leaders, politicians, etc., are on the other side of the camera. They're not sitting here. They're not me. They're not my peers. I want you all to adopt a mindset that you have limitless possibilities. And while I understand that you may not have all the luxuries at your disposal, opportunity met with tireless effort will lead to results. And I look forward to watching the next generation imparting their knowledge on you. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Pinterest jumping more than 7% today. The FT reporting Microsoft recently held talks to buy the company, but those talks are no longer active. The FT says it would have big Mike been Microsoft's biggest deal ever with a price tag of $51 billion. $51 billion. Guy, I think you're the only one on this panel with a Pinterest page, so I will go to you on this one. $51 billion. Is that what it's worth? Well, no, because I think it has a market cap of $54 billion after the move today. So if there's going to be a deal, it's probably going to be north of $70 billion, uh, respectfully. And listen, uh, you know, the only reason I know anything about Pinterest back in the day was through Rick Heitzman, who's come on the show a number of times. He was an early investor. And yes, I was an early adapter to the page. And I would put my Pinterest page up there with anybody. But in terms of what you're seeing business-wise, you have 70% year-over-year revenue growth. And you have ridiculous EPS growth. At a certain point, that's going to wane, but it doesn't appear to now. So I'm sure Microsoft wanted to do it at 50. If they want to do it now, it's probably closer to 75. I mean, when I read the report, I thought, well, why does Microsoft want Pinterest? I, I, did, I don't get that. But, um, you know, I don't know where you stand on either that potential deal, Tim, or, or Pinterest. Well, a lot of people questioned what Microsoft was thinking on LinkedIn. Now it seems to make a lot of sense when you consider their entire uh, kind of suite of products. And, and look, on Pinterest also, this has been a kind of a sneaky, sleepy way to play the housing trade because obviously Guy, if you look at his Pinterest page, he's, he's posting fabrics, he's posting, uh, you know, things he wants to hang on his walls. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I, 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 Pinterest valuation is another one of these names that makes no sense except for the fact that the scarcity that exists in, in call this, uh, you know, e-commerce, social media, you know, essentially consumption play, there's, there's, you know, look, there's, this is a great story to play. Uh, don't own it. Don't expect to own it in the near term. But uh, congrats to Rick and, and people that have been on for this ride. Dan? Yeah, I mean, to your point, it's, you know, when you think of the digital ad market, they are going to do $2.5 billion in sales. It's like 1% of Facebook and Google's combined. So they have to have a plan like they did for LinkedIn. I, they're not going to do this deal. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think that you should have some of these other uh, incumbents looking at some very innovative startups like Clubhouse, which just got valued at a billion dollars. Twitter is being really aggressive on some new services. They're launching a Clubhouse competitor called Spaces. I went on it last night. It's pretty cool. Um, I'd keep an eye out for what Twitter has to say about new services. They have an analyst day on February 25th. That could be a catalyst near term. All right. Coming up, Bumble bouncing higher in its trading debut. But what even is Bumble and should you buy it? Those details in the trade straight ahead. But first, we'll be joined by the CEO of Amicus, the company just out with some rare disease data. That stock is moving sharply after hours. That and much more when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Breaking news out of the White House. President Biden just announcing a short time ago deals for another 200 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines. 100 million will come from Moderna, the other 100 million from Pfizer. And that deal brings the U.S. total to 600 million doses. More than 17 percent of Americans over the age of 18 have now been administered COVID vaccines. Now, sticking with healthcare, biotech company Amicus falling hard in the after hours following news on its treatment for a rare genetic disease. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the company's CEO. Meg. Melissa, thanks so much. John Crowley, the CEO of Amicus, joins us now. John, I believe you're on the phone as we were having some troubles with your Hi. Zoom. Thank you for being with us. That's okay. Um, you know, tell us about these. Yeah, these results uh, in Pompeii disease. You know, the trial is a little bit confusing. It did not meet statistical significance on the main goal, although you did show improvements in patients' ability to walk uh, over Lumazine from Sanofi. Um, and you also showed a statistically significant improvement in breathing. So why do you think investors are so disappointed by these results? And do you think it will impact this drug's path forward? Well, Meg, let me say, first, this is a great day for people living with Pompe disease. I think this will really lift their spirits. Most all of these patients, they've only had one drug option for nearly 15 years. And as you know, with our family's journey here, having this data is incredibly important. So what the data from this amicus study showed, Meg, is that patients on the amicus therapy compared to standard of care walked further, they breathed more easily, and they improved on other multiple measures of the disease compared to an already approved medicine. And that's pretty remarkable. You know, in drug development, particularly in rare diseases, it's hard enough to beat placebo. We went head-to-head with a billion-dollar product, and we showed on multiple measures, including walking and breathing, that these patients improved. And we were particularly excited about what we saw with patients who were switching from the standard of care. So on the breathing endpoint in particular, to be able to stabilize patient switching, we think is profoundly important. And I can tell you the investigators that we've shared this with are very, very excited about the potential for this product for patients. And we think it mm. has the potential to become the next standard of care in Pompe disease. Right. And John, we should tell the audience, if they don't know your story, you really wear two important hats uh, in this space with Pompeii disease. It was the CEO of this company, of course, but also as a dad with two kids with Pompeii. And you've got an amazing story that was made into books and movies uh, about <laughs> yeah. how you develop drugs for your kids. Uh, was Lumazyme, the comparator drug, uh, one that you worked on at Genzyme and now you're working to replace that with a better drug now? And, and will this be one that your kids would take? Yeah, thanks, Meg. You know, I used to say I have two hats, the biotech entrepreneur and the dad. I realized long ago it's really one hat. And, yeah, we're really excited about the potential here. And, yes, while the initial first-generation drug that we had a hand in has helped people, what we wanted to do is to see could we potentially provide something better for patients. That's how we founded our company, Amicus. Again, the Latin name for friend. We wanted to be the most patient-friendly company but driven by extraordinary science. And the science for this drug was homegrown here at Amicus. And again, taking it all together on the breathing endpoints in this study, the patient switching, and very importantly, 117 patients finished this road disease study, and all 117, 100%, elected to stay voluntarily in the extension study only on the Amicus medicine. Nobody went back to the approved medicine. So we intend very quickly to move for regulatory approval in the United States and elsewhere. And I hope that my children and everybody living with Pompeii would have the opportunity 
to take this medicine. It, it really continues to be the crown jewel in the amicus portfolio. All right, John Crowley, that's all we've got time for tonight. We appreciate you being with us, and we look forward to continuing to follow your story and this drug going forward. Thanks yes. again. Meg, thank you for having me. Have a good night. All right, Meg. Now back to you. Meg, thank you so much. What a great story. What a fall for the stock, though, Guy, down 20%. It's a big move to the downside, but let's put things in a little perspective here. If you go back to October uh, of last year, obviously, this was a $14.5 stock, and then it was off to the races, probably in anticipation of what was people were hoping was positive news. Obviously, you're not getting that specifically. But you know what? Round turn, and there's still some encouraging signs to that interview that Meg just did. So if you're looking for an entry point, I think this 14.5 level, which is where I think it's trading last I looked, is going to be about as good as it gets for a while, just my opinion. All right. Coming up, the big buzz over Bumble, the stock flying in its trading debut. Find out if any of our traders are falling for this name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street falling for shares of Bumble today after shares of the dating app surged double digits in its market debut. Tim, I believe you own Match. Is this going to siphon away users? Well, I, I tell you, the, to me, the, the growth at Match is more impressive than I saw in the year-over-year numbers in their filing. And, and so for a company with this multiple, again, you want growth. And, and I realize that the profitability was part of the reason the stock did so well today and part of the, the momentum into, uh, into the IPO. You know, clearly, you know, Whitney Wolf, uh, uh, seemingly a great new wave of, of entrepreneur out there. The, the site certainly would have made my life easier growing up. And, and uh, I think there's something there. I, I clearly think that the space is going to continue to trade at a premium. I think Match Trades at a premium just did a, an acquisition that, that really gets them deeper into Asia and, and not necessarily full-time dating apps. So uh, I like the space a lot. Yeah, I, I guess also you, you mentioned growth. So where is it going to come from? Um, the CEO earlier today was talking about Bumble BFF to find friends, Bumble Biz to find business associates. And when I think of those two verticals, I think of Facebook that already exists, obviously, um, I, and I think of LinkedIn, Karen. So do you, do you think that these paths to growth are valid? I do think they're valid. I think one other path to growth is just more abdo- more adoption of the, you know, I think it's clear. This is, a, this is a great way to meet people. I'm very intrigued by her story. I've followed it for a long time. There was an interesting podcast, How I Built This. Uh, she was a Tinder, had a sort of a bad falling out and started this. I love the idea of sort of the woman being in charge. That's great. I, I love the story. Like Tim, I was a little bit disappointed in the growth. I'd like to see the trajectory. I thought that the pandemic would be very difficult for Match and for someone like Bumble, but it wasn't. There was a lot of there was sort of a lot of uh, silver linings there. We'll see when things open up how the revenue continues to grow. Also, they do have international exposure, and I like that part, like the BFF. So. I like it all. I love her as a CEO, uh, but I'm I'm a little. It's a little. The valuation's a little rich for me. So, swiping left, I guess you say at the moment. But I'm keeping it on my phone for sure. All right. Up next, final <laughs> trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Have you seen copper prices lately? I, I think Freeport ready for the next leg of the journey after a small consolidation. Again, I, resource trade still has a lot to do. 
Karen Feinerman. I just want to say I do have a Pinterest page also. A oh, lot you of do. Fabrics, a lot of landscaping. I do. Yeah, Congrats. I'll show you sometime. Anyway, I'll send it to you. And going old school, Walmart for a reopen trade or not, I really like it. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I'm kind of a guy here. If you see Disney touch uh, 200, you might look to take some profits or sell some calls against your long stock. Guy Dami. You said Bumble's bounce in the T's and it went right over your head. That was a Rudolph thing, Mel, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. Lamb Research, LRCX. Look forward to it. Uh, thanks for watching Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs> 